Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I think that you are really going to come away from today's podcast with a lot of new ideas about using DMT. You see, since DMT is the most widespread psychoactive molecule found in nature, and, and, well, it's even endogenous to our brains, so maybe it's time for us to become, uh, well, a little more at home with DMT. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Gallimore, and he has developed an interesting new protocol for extending an NMDMT trip well beyond the normal five minutes or so that smoking brings us. The conversation that we're about to listen in on took place last Monday evening in the live salon that I host each week for my Patreon supporters. As you will hear, Andrew is a computational neurobiologist, which sounds to me like it's a notch above rocket scientist. (laughs) And uh, in today's program notes, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've added links to his website and to the paper that he refers to in this conversation. As uh, you and I listen to Andrew's ideas about prolonging the DMT experience, I think that it's important to also remember how very little we actually know about what's going on in our minds during that experience. If you follow some of the links in today's program notes, or better yet, if you read Andrew's book, which is titled Alien Information Theory, Psychedelic Drug Technologies and the Cosmic Game. (laughs) Great title, Andrew. Anyhow, uh, if you read that book, you'll get a much better idea of the science and mathematics that Dr. Gallimore brings to this discussion. However, for me, the main reason I'm interested in this potential research is that, uh, well, just like you, I certainly would like some confirmation, uh, either for or against, the proposition that when under DMT intoxication, there really are other sentient beings that we come into contact with. Like many of us here in the salon, some of the times when I've smoked NNDMT, I've come back with vivid memories of interacting with other entities. And at the time, I've been quite certain that it wasn't just a hallucination. However, uh, well, now it's been several years since the last time I smoked DMT, and I have to admit that I now have doubts about what I saw or thought that I encountered. You see, these experiences fade over time, as well as you well know. So wouldn't it be great if we had teams of scientists, psychologists, artists, musicians, writers, and uh, a lot of us everyday people who could help build a large data set that we could mine to help us better understand what it is that we are seeing when we're under the influence of DMT. What I'm still wondering is whether these experiences actually are interstellar communications with an alien species. You see, without some scientific investigation on the scale being proposed here, I, for one, just can't completely rule that out. So now let's listen in on last Monday's live salon and see if there are some new ideas here that will spark yet more new ideas in that wonderful mind of yours. Yeah, we've got a, a few of us in here, and uh, uh, Aunt Andrew has made it in here, and, and of course, one of the people we're waiting for is Kevin. Andrew, uh, you know, we've been doing this for over a year now, and uh, almost every Monday night that, that uh, I guess all but one of them, 
Kevin, who's one that you know put us in contact with you. Yeah. Kev, Kevin comes in. He he's driving in the middle of Ohio, uh, driving home from from work in this truck, I think. And and you know I always worry about him on the road and distracting him and stuff like that. Well, a few weeks ago, we didn't really have much to talk about. About a quarter after seven, I said, you know, we're just here. Let's let's not waste time. Let's uh, call it quits. We signed off, and a minute later, a huge tornado went across the road right behind him. And wow! And the next day, they had snowplow equipment getting the debris off the road. But he had wow. just missed that. So, wow! Kind of interesting. Yeah. In fact, speak of the devil. Kevin, I just told Andrew your story about missing a tornado here one Monday night. Uh, oh, yeah? <laughs> yep, that was pretty crazy. That was <laughs> really nuts around here. Now, you know, I I kind of hope that, that you'd do a little introduction of Andrew tonight, but, you know, I always worry about you driving, Kevin. <laughs> You're on the road, and, and, you know, I'm old and conservative, and so I, I worry about that. I want to make sure you take care of yourself first, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I trust that you can probably do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, when I was uh, working as a sailor, we always – Oh, I said one hand for yourself and one hand for the ship. And so uh, you just keep both hands on the wheel and your eye on the road, and uh, <laughs> we'll do the best we can here. So, uh, All right. Yeah. So is Andrew on then? Yeah, he's, he's yeah. first one out here. <laughs> if you all go up to uh, gallery view, you can see the whole list of us. There's uh, 17 of us here right now. Uh, where are you? Uh, you're in Okinawa right now? Yeah, yeah, Okinawa, deep south yeah. of Japan. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there uh, one time. I, I was there for, you know, speaking of weather, I was there for a day. I flew in from uh, Tokyo and I did some work at the military base. And then a uh, a, a typhoon was on its way. So yeah, as soon yeah, as yeah. I got done working, I jumped on a plane, went back to Tokyo. So I was there for only a few hours. But Yeah, throughout the summer, we have a string of them, like one after the other sometimes. You know, it's pretty crazy. It's been getting worse in recent years as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so Andrew, what what are you what do you do in in Taiwan in Okinawa? I mean, um, I'm a computational neurobiologist. I work at the this kind of a new university. Well, fairly new. It's been I think it's been around about ten years now. Um, but it's um, kind of a new. It's called the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology. So it's a graduate university, graduate kind of research university, and I, I I'm interested in. Um, kind of modeling, using mathematical and computational models to try and understand how the brain works, basically. But, you know, you know, computational neuroscience, to me, makes a rocket scientist sound like a first grader, you know? <laughs> and I watched, I watched part of one of your videos where you were showing the brain changes uh, under various uh, psychedelic states and all how, uh, I don't know how we're going to get to that before, but before mm. we're done tonight, I would like to talk yeah. about that. Sure. Uh, you know, we we uh, first learned about you and your work, uh, of course, through Kevin, and and he'd been talking about it for some time. And you know, he he sent me one of these these patches, and uh, oh, yeah, and I I gave uh, the first one he sent me uh, to Bruce Damer, who you put it on his flight suit for the uh, talk he gave at uh, uh, Convergence in uh, on Orcas Island in March. Nice. And and uh, so that's really 
how most of us know much about you, and other than the links that I sent out, that I, I hope some of them check. But uh, where, where do you want to start? To, what What is it that you want to talk about? And let me let me give you an idea of the audience. Yeah. I don't want to speak for everybody here. I only speak for myself. Uh, I've I've got a, quite a extensive use with DMT and and many other things. And most of the people here at least have a working knowledge or a talking knowledge of all these things. And uh, we're really fascinated with what we've heard of uh, some of the future directions that you want to head with a project. So maybe you can start with uh, how you how you got to where you are now and then where you're going. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no problem, Lorenzo. I, so I'm, I, I have kind of a quite a, a varied academic past. I mean, I've been interested in, in psych, psychoactive drugs, really, since I was a teenager. I was interested in the way that these kind of molecules can in, interface and interact with, with the body and particularly with the brain and the mind and cause kind of dramatic changes in consciousness. Uh, I always found that to be um, really, really fascinating. And uh, from a, both a, a scientific kind of academic perspective, but also from a subjective perspective, you know, how, how on earth when you take a tiny amount of this, this substance, uh, can it affect such dramatic uh, life-changing effects on consciousness and so I knew really from when I was 15 16 years old when I first became kind of interested in these these chemicals um, that I was I was going to kind of try and devote my life to trying and understanding them and so I you know this this was just was out when I was starting to think about going to college and you know what was I going to study and that kind of thing and so I, I initially moved towards chemistry and pharmacology because I was interested in you know, the molecules and interested in uh, how they interact with the body and with the brain. Um, and then throughout my doctoral work, I moved towards sort of biochemistry, became more interested in the, sort of the deep levels of, of, of the human organism. Um, and now I'm, I've moved for the last five or six years. I've been interested in neurobiology and actually trying to understand the brain and trying to understand at a kind of a deep level what is actually going on you know what is actually happening when you have a, a trip um, and most importantly what is actually happening when you have a, a DMT trip which is you know, the trip of trips um, in that it is this 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 100% reality switch you know how is it possible that 30 milligrams of this extremely simple extremely common a natural plant alkaloid uh, can affect the most indescribably bizarre alterations of consciousness, um, such that the world shifts from the normal con consensus waking reality that we're all familiar with. And then suddenly the world is altogether different um, and not in a kind of chaotic way, not in a way where the world is kind of jumbled up or, or becomes uh, a maelstrom of, of confusion and chaos. Um, but actually as if the channel has been switched, the channel has not just been nudged out of tune, but as if the actual, there is, a, there is another hidden channel there, as if in the brain, and that somehow DMT causes that, that, very, uh, causes that switch in a very efficient manner. So that's, yeah, that's where I am now and where I've been for the last few years is trying to get a handle on, if, as far as is possible, what, what the hell. You know what, what you call a channel, which I'm sure is, is more accurate than I've always thought of the, our brain being able to set up different networks, different circuits and everything. I saw DMT yeah. 
locking in different circuits. But uh, one of the questions I have, you know, you are following an intellectual path that, you know, I've known a lot of people who have dreamt of following something like this. How did you get support along the way? I mean, uh, did you have to go, you know, stealth and not tell them what you're really doing? Or how did you, how did you pull this off? Yeah, to an extent. Yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly never received any direct funding for this kind of DMT psychedelic stuff that I do. That's always been in parallel, but kind of on the side. All the kind of the academic work that I do has always has a kind of a, a kind of a mainstream academic reason for doing it, you know, just like any other scientist. But on the side, I'm, I've always been, I've had this kind of psychedelic thing. And so I've never really gone into academic positions without thinking about, well, how can I relate this to what I'm doing in terms of psychedelics? So this is why, you know, I'm, uh, I, I worked in, in pharmacology and chemistry and now neuroscience because I knew that this could, this is always going to help me on this kind of path towards developing some kind of broad understanding of, of, of what these psychedelics do because, you know, psychedelics, they're, they're extremely difficult things because they, they work on at so many different levels. They work, you know, the, the, the chemical level, um, you know, how do they interact with these proteins inside the brain? Um, you know, what effects do they cause at this protein level? Uh, binding to these serotonin receptors, for example. Uh, but then you have to think, well, how does that cause these dramatic changes in this global brain activity? And in fact, changes in the, this network activity, exactly what you referred to, Lorenzo. You know, that's actually more accurate, actually, neuroscientifically than this idea of a channel. The idea of activating different network and stabilizing different sets of network is actually uh, what these psychedelics, uh, particularly DMT, um, seems to do. And, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, your, your path, uh, <coughs> reminds me of that of uh, a close friend of mine who's no longer with us, but, uh, he did the similar thing <coughs> and, and, uh, he, he followed a professional chemistry career and became a, a top chemist for a big drug company, uh, and, you know, did work that got patents and stuff. But as a result, he got a private lab in one of the nation's largest pharmaceutical companies and uh did a lot of private chemistry yeah. you know and uh, and not just creating stuff for us he did some research in there too and and uh, so i i think that uh you have many brothers uh in arms that you probably don't even know about yeah yeah well shulgin of course i mean that was i mean shulgin was yeah that, that was that his case kind of path and it, it is difficult to try and forge a path particularly if you need access to scientific kind of equipment and you know, resources to actually do it entirely yeah. independently. You know, if you just want to write books, that's great. You can do that on your own. But if you want to, you know, write academic books and have access to scientific libraries and uh, and and to, you know, laboratories even, uh, you know, and high-power computational resources, you know, then you, you kind of have to be at least loosely attached to, right. uh, you know, an institution um, without <laughs> becoming too wedded to it. I mean, I've always had, I've always been in, the position that I've, I'm, I'm slowly extricating myself away from the, I'm, I'm slowly deinstitutionalizing myself over time. Uh, and I don't want to be part of a, a university institution for, 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 you know, for the, for the, for the entire future. You know, it's right. something I'm, I'm kind of pulling myself away from slowly. Yeah. Well, I know, I know that uh, Sasha Shulgin made great use of the mass spectrometer at uh, Cal Berkeley 
but uh, he he uh, was able to stay too uh, you know at distance from the university. I think he yeah. did a lot of favors for some of the professors up there. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah. like that. So so uh, now now uh, you have have uh, picked up on the protocol that Rick Strassman was doing for uh, uh, a slow slow motion, I guess, DMT trip. That's that's how I kind of picture it. And and uh, Kevin's never really had a chance to describe much of it. And I know he's done a lot of reading and listening to your work and all like that. But uh, f- from what I understand, you know, it's uh, it's well. Let me ask you just to explain it because uh, yeah. I probably don't understand anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's it's my protocol. Actually, I actually I had the idea back in 2015, uh, and I actually approached Rick. Um, to ask him if he wanted to collaborate because okay so basically the idea is that um as, as everybody knows the dmt experience particularly uh with the normal route modes of administration whether it's it's vaping it in a little glass pipe or or, or injection um is is a very brief experience and then it only lasts you know the peak is within a couple of minutes really and then you, you're, you're already starting to come down so you're only within this this what we call the DMT space uh, for maybe five minutes. Um, and then you, you're kind of dragged out again. And I've, I've always, for me, I've always felt that DMT was more than just a drug. I always, I've always seen it as, 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 as a tool or a technology. Um, and, you know, we're an intelligent species. And I think that we, we should, we, if we, if, if we find or locate some kind of technology, we should, um, we should bring our best tools to the table and try and develop that technology. You know, when, you know, we, we as, as humans, when we first discovered fire uh, and now we think what we do, you know, then we think about the internal combustion engine or something like that. You don't just stop uh, with sitting around a campfire, you develop the technology. And I, I kind of see DMT like that in that it's, um, you know, it's re- really quite recently discovered. The, the pure form of DMT was discovered in 1956 so we've had just over half a century um, uh, of kind of working out what this thing is and what it can do. And I think my feeling has, has been that we need to start thinking about what's the best way to use it. And I don't, I don't think that smoking it in a little glass pipe is, is the be all and end all of this. I think it's a perfectly valid and efficient way of using DMT. Uh, and I particularly like these little vape pens that people are using now. I think this is really a cool way of, of administering DMT. But I think... Um, you know, we have to think, you know, beyond, beyond the obvious and people get wedded. This kind of, this kind of romanticism attached to the idea of, of using a little glass pipe and lighting incense and that kind of thing. Uh, but I've always felt we need to push forward. Um, so I thought, you know, if, 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 if we treat DMT as a technology and if we actually take seriously the idea that it does grant access to, uh, you know, hidden orthogonal dimensions of reality, within which there are actually intelligent, extremely intelligent beings. Um, I thought, well, we need to do better. It's, 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 it's impolite for a start to burst into somebody's space um, and then, <laughs> you know, look around wide-eyed and then disappear again just as quickly. I thought, That's terribly, a terribly, you know, uncivilized way of behaving. So I thought, you know, well, we need to develop a way of entering this space reliably, um, you know, um, not just using ayahuasca, by the way, which is a whole 
different type of technology. Um, but entering this space and maintaining uh, our presence within this space. And, and it, it occurred to me that the type of technology that is used uh, in anesthesiology so in anesthesiology, of course, is the, the, the art of putting people to sleep, basically. It's a lot more than that, of course. But, but basically, the idea is that, you know, when you go for an operation, surgery, and they put you, put, you, put you out for two or three hours, what they normally do is they don't just inject you uh, with, with, with the drug and kind of hope that you remain asleep those two or three hours. But they, they inject you with a, 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 an infusion of the drug, a program. They use a programmable infusion device, which delivers a precise, um, a precisely measured rate um, of, of drug dose into the bloodstream over time. And this, what the idea here is that it actually maintains uh, a specific level of, of drug concentration in the brain. Um, this keeps you at a certain level of anesthesia and you can bring yourself, they can bring you out or they can push you a little bit deeper if they're doing an incision, that kind of thing. So they have some quite high degree of, um, control over the level of drug in the brain. And I thought, well, DMT actually exhibits some of the pharmacolo the specific pharmacological characteristics of these anesthetic drugs. So these anesthetic drugs, they, they have to be very short-acting drugs. Um, they have to be metabolized pretty quickly, broken down quite quickly. They have to leave the body quite quickly. They can't build up. Um, they can't show what's called subjective tolerance, which means that the effect of the drug must uh, remain constant with you know a, a, a continuous dose uh, otherwise the the person might kind of wake up uh, and and it, you know it struck me that that dmt has precisely these qualities um it's of course it's very it's very uh, fast acting and it doesn't last very long um and it it's very rapidly and efficiently cleared from the body and as rick strass and actually demonstrated in his study in the 90s. It doesn't exhibit subjective tolerance, uh, which means you can give someone a dose of DMT uh, and then 30 minutes later or 15 minutes later or whatever, give them the same dose and the, the intensity of the experience is going to be the same every time, um, which is, is quite unusual. And, and this is kind of one of these unique pharmacological peculiarities of DMT. So I thought, well, why not um, use this what's called target controlled intravenous infusion, uh, which is basically this anesthesiology technology. Why not use that with DMT? Um, and so I thought, well, what I need to do that, first of all, to actually test that idea, you need uh, what's called a pharmacokinetic model, which is a, a mathematical model that, that explains, describes the way that the drug, um, when it enters the body, distributes and spreads throughout the body uh, and the brain, uh, how it is broken down and removed from the body, all that kind of thing. And, and to develop that model, you need um, blood data. So you need um, blood samples taken at 30-second intervals or whatever um, uh, from someone who has just received a dose of DMT. And you need that for quite a lot of people. Um, so you get a measure. You can see exactly how the, the levels of DMT rise and then fall. Um, and I knew that... Rick Strassman had taken that kind of data in his 90s study because I'd seen, I've seen charts that he had, he had published in, in, in some of his papers. So I knew he, he must have had that data at some point. Uh, so I, I fired off an email to Rick and I said, I have this idea. Um, however, I would, it would be really helpful if you had this, this, this data. 
And luckily enough, you know, tucked away in, in, a, in an old hard drive somewhere, uh, Rick had this Excel file, which he duly passed on to me. Um, uh, and then I, I developed this model and then we kind of wrote this paper together. Uh, explaining how it would work and you know, its potential uses and you know both therapeutic and otherwise um, and yeah and, and then it kind of took off and then other people have become very interested in it and um, have you know some people are even trying to implement it now. But you know I've, I've got a question but first I've got a <laughs> comment I've, I want to make. I've, I've talked to hundreds of people about DMT and most of them who have used it even but you are the first person that I've heard say this, and I sure wish Terrence McKenna was here to hear it, that nobody else has ever thought about what they looked to the elves when they got into it. <laughs> and it never occurred to me that, you know, like you said, it's kind of rude just to pop in. And pop out, you know, that's a, an interesting perspective. Uh, my, my question is, and, and I know there's a huge difference, but I've never been able to talk to anybody that really has given some thought and would know something about it. But I, you know, that the, the Strassman original protocol of the, the drip, you know, the long term DMT, uh, compared with an ayahuasca experience, which is a DMT experience of over a long term, but nothing like a smoke DMT. Uh, yeah. What's the difference in these, these, uh, things? Yeah, so so one of the the most common criticisms of of this paper that we wrote is, is well, you know, isn't aren't you just isn't this just ayahuasca? You know, we've had this for thousands of years, and 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 that's kind of it's half true, but it's also completely, as you point out, you know, the ayahuasca state is not the same as a breakthrough DMT state, and we you know this you know, phenomenologically in terms of the actual effect, people they're very different, um, but oh going on there but also there is um if you actually you can uh, people have studied ayahuasca uh, quite extensively and studied the actual levels of dmt in people's blood and if you actually measure the level of dmt in people's blood at the peak of an ayahuasca experience it's normally only about less than 20 percent of the level that you reach with smoke dmt or with with, with dmt that's injected so um so ayahuasca delivers a, it's a slow rise to a peak and then a slow decline uh, but it never reaches these this very high levels with uh, with uh, with smoke DMT or injected DMT. So we're not suggesting you know this kind of thing. We're suggesting much higher and then actually maintained. Um, so it, it, imagine being at the peak of a breakthrough DMT experience and then being held there, um, and you know for several hours. That's that's what we're aiming. But one doesn't have to go that deep that quickly you know there are the, the, the great thing about this technique is that um you can you can control the level so you could push someone in to kind of a sub threshold sub breakthrough level um experience and then you know once they're comfortable push them a little deeper and then push them a little deeper and then bring them out again and you could even have communication uh between uh, the, the people in, still in the room, so to speak, um, delivering the infusion and, and the actual individual undergoing the experience. So you could deliver information there, like, you know, push me deeper, I need to go deeper, or I need to come out, this is getting a bit too intense, you know. So, so the idea is that you would have control within really a few seconds, you could start to pull someone back. Um, whereas, of course, in ayahuasca, it's, you know, once you've swallowed it uh, and... Yeah and vomited it out again and then swallowed it again or whatever uh you know that it's it's largely out you have to kind of you know 
uh, relinquish control over to the to the drug and and you know the levels that will be reached in your brain of dmt will vary you know this is this is a, a relatively crude plant decoction um where you know levels of dmt are going to vary from batch to batch and it, it's certainly not a precise way of controlling or keeping dmt uh levels steady in the brain which is what we're we're posing here well you know that's interesting because really it looks like your your uh what your research is heading toward or your, these experiences you you really want to find more uh subjective data than than just uh you know, objective data like, oh, they had so many milligrams per kilogram, et cetera, that, that this is more like uh, push me more, push me more. And the communication, this is something that's totally different from what I've heard of other uh, research tests. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's always been about, ultimately, it's been about the subjective experience. The, you know, the, the tool that you use is not so important as long as it works. So I'm interested in developing this as a technology, as a tool, uh, but ultimately it will be, you know, what is the actual, what is the experience? What is the person undergoing here? Um, and, you know, how can we, how can we use the experience to try and understand the nature of the experience, to try and understand the nature of these beings that one meets? And, you know, can we establish stable communication uh, with these beings you know can we you know normally you would spend two or three minutes maximum in communication with some this is whilst this maelstrom is beginning to stabilize you know it takes normally for most people by the time they've kind of um oriented themselves best they can within the dmt space they're already coming back um and so and, and for many that's that's a blessing um, but, you know, if you really want to treat this as a place to explore uh, and to, you know, I, I, I use the word guardedly, but to map uh, and actually try and, you know, uh, Terence McKenna wrote that essay, New Maps of Hyperspace, uh, way back now. So, you know, I'm, this is kind of perhaps what, what he was talking about, right? You know, these are maps of a completely novel domain that has never been mapped before and how would you even go about mapping a place like this? You know, that's really an interesting question. Some people say, oh, it's impossible. You can't map the DMT space. But I, I, I think that's a little bit presumptuous. I think, yes, it's gonna, probably going to take people with a range of disciplines. You're going to require mathematicians. You're going to require anthropologists. You're going to require linguists and pharmacologists and neuroscientists and, you know, you name it. You know, and a few, a few artists, I think, too, and musicians. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. You're definitely going to need artists to actually try and render some of these ideas into a meaningful form, you know, for sure. Yeah. You know, all of these poets, physicians, you know, farmers, scientists, musicians, absolutely, you know. Yeah. You know, if if I understood you correctly, that there, I'm not saying this is a way to do it, a good or bad, but there's the potential for, let's say I was I was uh, hooked up to your your uh, drip, and I was saying, okay, push it a little bit more, okay, that's I need to come down, mm -hmm. and then I could come down, I could journal, write, talk, whatever, and an hour later I could go back. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could come back just. You could basically, I kind of imagine it like um, like you're a diver um, or a deep sea diver or a free diver perhaps and you're going down deep and then you can kind of pop up, take a few breaths, you know, say whatever you need to say and then come back down again and, and, and that could be controlled. And so you wouldn't have to come out entirely. 
um, you know, you wouldn't have to get back in the boat, so to speak. You know, you could remain in the water, um, but, you know, come to the surface um, or close enough to the surface such that communication becomes possible uh, and then go back down. Uh, and then, you know, you might even receive instructions from the people, you know, still in the room. Uh, and, and, and you could pass back information. So, you know, it, it becomes a much more, um, uh, what word am I looking for? You know, it, 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 you, you construct the experience and you, you could, rather than just giving way to the experience, uh, which is one way, but actually being much more intera interactive and actually saying, okay, I've met these beings here, these, uh, and, and I'm asking them these questions and they're giving this information and you're relaying that back. You know, and they, they, they might feed you back some information that you can't make sense of, but perhaps that you can relay to the, um, the mathematician the outside. Uh, <laughs> standing there and going, OK, you need to ask them this or you need to do this or you need to do, don't do this, do this. You know, and you have anthropologists and you have all these psychologists all at the. And so it's 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 you're the intermediary, really, uh, between between the worlds. Uh, I think that's really kind of a cool way. <laughs> you, you know what? <laughs> what I was thinking of as you're describing this is Terence McKenna's thought of a time machine. And the first time somebody creates a time machine, everybody in the future is going to show up there back to that first yeah. time. Well, the first time you kick this thing off, I expect Terence McKenna to show up. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> but no, this this is really fascinating. I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I'm I'm in in my late seventies now, and so I I pretty much decided I'm not going to smoke DMT again because, you know, not that I don't enjoy it and it's not great, but it's the experience is too short. It's just not yeah. worth, it's not worth the body load and all that stuff. But something like this, I can see myself still, uh, you know, if, if I qualified physically to do it, this is something that would interest me simply because that's a space that, that really is almost impossible to explore. Ayahuasca space, while it is DMT, is a totally different substance i mean it's it's, yeah. it's a synergistic uh result of, of several plants you know yeah but uh smoke mndmt is so unique and if you could if i could go there and spend a little time and take a breath and come back and spend some more time mm -hmm. uh you know that's that's something worth worth uh you know i'll help you, you know, see if we can push this thing forward because i would like to see uh what people come back with and and i have a feeling that that what all of us here tonight and you have been thinking all this time i think that there's probably some things going to come out of this that are so far beyond any of our imaginations we'd be surprised because oh, yeah. this is this is not only the most powerful psychedelic there is it's in our brains too there's something really important about it oh yeah yeah for sure you know dmt is it, it, it has a number of these these special characteristics that really just scream out and say you know i this is this is not just another natural psychedelic this is something very very special um you know the fact that it's it's everywhere you know dennis mckenna always says nature is drenched in dmt um exactly right you know it, it is everywhere you look you know you, you it's hard to look without seeing a plant that contains some dmt of course levels vary widely but um you know it's it's as if it's a message that's been scattered throughout our reality uh, and that's just waiting for some intelligent being that reaches a certain level of cognitive sophistication that they can actually decode the message and and we are that species you know we have discovered um, 
uh, we have discovered this, this, this secret message embedded in our reality, embedded in, in the natural world. And we're now starting to, to actually decode it. They say, what, mm-hmm. what is this message actually telling us? And the message is a tool. It's a technology uh, that allows us to, to, to escape this limited um, lower dimensional slice of this insane, uh, bizarre, hyper-dimensional reality, you know, and, and our reality sits as this, I think, as this little slice, like a, in, in the same way that like a, a 2D slice of a, of a, of a cube, uh, like a 2D plane, it's just a slice of that reality. We're like a, you know, a three or four dimensional slice of this incredibly complex hyper-dimensional reality. And DMT is this, this tool, this message that's been implanted and say, hey, you know, there is a way out, you know, this is... Um, you know, there is there is another place to go to beyond this parochial little universe that you think is is everything. You know, it really isn't everything. <laughs> well, let, let's see if somebody else has some questions you'd like to ask here. Uh, anybody uh, want to raise your hand or speak up? Or uh... I would like to ask a question. Go. go ahead, Houston. This is hey, Houston uh, Power. Hi, yeah, Houston, Houston Power. Wow. I appreciate what you're doing. Um, it's uh, it's awesome. I love the idea. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the years to come. Do you have any direct experience with an actual medical team setting up an IV with an infusion pump and doing this, or is it all just theory? It's all just theory at the moment. There is um, so so the, the the paper that I wrote with Rick was really a what I call like a proof of principle. So the idea was to demonstrate that DMT has the the, the required pharmacological characteristics that would allow this technology to actually work. Um, and but to actually go from there to actually doing it in humans, there's there's quite a lot of additional work needs to be done. It's not kind of a plug and play kind of thing. Um, you need to develop first. You need to refine the pharmacokinetic model um, uh, using a lot more data and a lot more careful analysis. Um, so so there is actually a team that's working with the Imperial College Psychedelic Research Group who's actually doing a much more detailed analysis. Uh, of of Rick's blood data, and hopefully we'll get a, a much more refined model, which they will then publish and will be you know publicly available. Um, and so they're they're kind of thinking about using the technology, developing this technology. And then there's of course there's the medicinal mindfulness team, the DMTX uh, team uh, over in Colorado, who are also pushing it uh, from a very completely different kind of perspective. Um, so so I expect that it will be this will be implemented in humans in the not too distant future now there are people that have told me um that they have done it they have used my protocol uh but you know i I, whether i believe them i'm not sure and and there was there was actually a study back in 2005 that actually did use an infusion of dmt Uh, they didn't use it wasn't the same as our they didn't use it wasn't informed by a kind of a, a pharmacokinetic model. So they didn't have the level of control. And actually a lot of the, the, the subjects dropped out of the study. But they, were, they were actually doing, uh, looking at the subjective effects of DMT versus ketamine. So, um, so some of the subjects will have received uh, a ketamine infusion uh, and some of them received DMT infusion. But they, it, was, it was, if you actually look at the, read the paper, um, the, a number of the, the subjects dropped out because the, the effects were just too intense. So I think you know you have to, you have to get get it right. Um, it, getting the infusion rate right is not that straightforward. If you're if the infusion rate is too slow, 
then the levels will continue to drop in the brain and then the person will just come come out and if they're too high then they will build and build and build and then the person basically has overwhelmingly intense effects and then just blacks out essentially so getting that level right and having that level right across individual uh, based you know based upon their their weight or their age or their sex or uh, their you know their metabolic profile all these kind of things all these things need to be worked out so it it's a simple idea uh, but the actual technicalities of it are a little bit more complex than that yeah it would have to go through the same process as ketamine for example has over the years and it's very complex like you said you hit all the all the, the points on that so that's what's up. Yeah. Um, I just can, I'm a little bit concerned about the psychology result mm. of this. So if you send somebody into that space and they go on for a long time, as you well aware of the you know, side effects of psychedelics with the mm. Messiah complex and stuff, and they have this powerful experience of, you know, oh, there's like other dimensions and, and they're yeah. as external, not from them. It can literally change them and not for the better and so, oh yeah there's there's always a risk of that right you know like we all have good experiences with dmt mm. and psychedelics but it could be detrimental to some people so as it oh yeah it is it seems a little bit like that would have you'd have to have like thousands of people go through trials and then you'd have to have it obviously in a legal situation where doctors could prescribe it and use it so, yes Yes, yeah, so I think you're right. I mean, this is not something that uh, I'm expecting you to go to Walmart and pick up one of these machines um, and you know and, and start going. Well, not at first anyway, but uh, it's just like any any kind of dangerous expedition. You know, you would you would have to receive adequate training. You know, you don't go deep sea diving um, having never gone in the water before, um, and you know there are risks, of course, involved. Now we do know that. You know, the physiological risks of DMT are minimal um, in that it is completely non-toxic. But you're, you're right about psychological risks. Uh, these are, of course, are completely they're not unrelated to what's going on in the brain. In fact, they're, they're highly correlated to what's going on in the brain. And certainly when you, when, whenever, you, whenever you open your eyes and you're having an experience and you're ex you know, experiencing the world, um, information is entering the brain and it's changing your brain. Um, and that's happening all the time. If you learn a new word, if you're learning a new language, your brain has changed. Um, and this also applies in the DMT state. If, you, if you're entering this, this higher dimensional space and you're interacting with this entirely new world, the brain is receiving completely novel patterns of data and perhaps over extended periods of time. And so if, if, if someone was to enter this space for hours or days even um you know i am thinking far ahead here but you know it's not out of the question then one does have to think about how it's actually going to change the brain uh and that the brain essentially becomes locked in a sense in into constructing this very very strange bizarre uh hyperdimensional reality over extended periods of time and then you have to think about well how's that going to affect when they have to kind of switch back to their normal waking world uh, and that's the you know, these are sort of things that will present themselves either as problems or not as problems as um, as the research continues and and I think you're absolutely right you know that, that risks cannot be discounted but nothing ventured nothing gained <laughs> one question um, one question um, 
the the effects of DMT. Now, when you take ayahuasca, you you, can, you get you get a little drunk and um, you feel very heavy. Is that the DMT or is that something else in the ayahuasca? I would say that's more likely to be. Um, I would say that's more likely to be something else in the ayahuasca. You've got these Mao inhibitors, basically. So um, the Mao inhibitor itself, think about harmine, harmaline. Um, these have mild psychoactive effects. Um, but you're also, you're, you're inhibiting the breakdown of other amines in the body. Um, and so it's not surprising you're going to get um, additional effects. Um, the DMT itself normally doesn't cause any kind of heaviness or drowsiness. It's very, you know, it's remarkable. And this is one of its remarkable characteristics. And that's something that Terence McKenna used to speak about a lot in the way that he said, he said, in a way, DMT doesn't affect the mind in that it, you know, you're in that space in a, in a completely clear head and you can wander around, look around um, in, the same, in, a, in a way, in a kind of the same um, mindset as when you're awake normally. And that's what makes it more startling is that you don't have that buffer um, of, of slight intoxication, um, you know, which kind of can be quite nice sometimes. Um, this is why pe some people often drink wine before they um or beer or whiskey or whatever before they take a dmt trip it helps to take the edge off that it gives that slight intoxication or whatever you know or smoke a, a joint or something something that gives that intoxication and slightly separates you from the experience um because it is so bizarre uh, and if you go into the dmt state with a with a completely clear head uh, it's even more astonishing because it's like well i'm I'm perfectly normal. I'm not stoned in, in any way or, uh, you know, I don't feel intoxicated. And yet I'm in this really bizarre place. You know, that's, um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, one of the remarkable characteristics of DNT is it doesn't induce that, that kind of stoning or intoxication type of effect, really. Um, and that's remarkable because it is such a simple um, chemical. And simple chemicals generally, as a rule of thumb, tend to, um, tend to often have quite broad effects they they tend to cause intoxication uh but dmt doesn't um so i say with ayahuasca i think yeah it, it's the other things in there that are causing those effects so part of the the neat thing about this technology is you would actually avoid those secondary effects so you're not vomiting and having diarrhea and uh, you know sweating and all these kind of additional kind of side effects purging uh, that you get with ayahuasca Aaron, you had a have a question oh i do thank you um, sorry, I'm late, and so if anything I ask is has already been covered, uh, forgive me. Um, but have you read Andrew uh, Olaf Stapleton's book, Star Maker? I haven't by any chance. No, it's 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 something that I feel like is is really relevant to what you're doing. It's just it's a 1937 book, but in it he speaks of uh, there are disembodied starts with a disembodied human who goes out through throughout the galaxy and gathers up other disembodied intelligences. And they, they are somehow free from time and space. And then they are able to chart different races throughout the entire universe who are evolving at different speeds and all that point being there as races evolve past a certain point species, rather um, they start being able to uh, psychically uh, scan the universe and subtly affect other species in their development. And it's usually very benign. And so something I think about um, when you think about the impracticality of physical space travel uh, on an interstellar level, um, 
so I was, I'm just thinking about the way that psychedelics can tune your brain to a frequency that would be receptive to uh, uh, an alien species, a more advanced species that's sending out signals and broadcasting um, thoughts, ideas, uh, concepts to, to lesser species. Um, and that, sorry, this is, I'm not phrasing this well, but it's just an interesting book that he, he goes into that a lot without the psychedelics. Um, yeah. As, as, as a way of, of species evolving throughout the galaxies. Um, but to me, it would make sense that psychedelics can alter our brain patterns enough to be receptive to these things. So the okay. whole con- yeah, go on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you've, you've, you've hit on a number of interesting ideas there. And the idea, first of all, the idea of, uh, of, of, diverse types of intelligence and that the intelligence may not take the form of uh, species with, with skulls, with this kind of gelatinous information generating machinery, but actually information could take forms that we, we simply cannot consider um, or cannot even comprehend. Um, and, and, and really to understand that you really need to think about what we mean by intelligence and they need to get to think about ideas about complexity theory and things like that. But um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, we, 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 we don't really have the ability to even comprehend, I think, what an intelligence from that is, let's say, a million years ahead of us in terms mm-hmm. of advancement, that's, you know, what would that even look like? It, it almost certainly wouldn't be still doing it, you know, doing it on meat, so to speak. No. Uh, uh, and that, that you, you might have these more diffuse types of intelligence um, and that these could exist not only within this universe, uh, but actually could exist in other universes and that they, and there's no reason why they haven't discovered a means of transferring information between universes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the, the key point that I always t- kind of stress when, when trying to think about, um, you know, how, to, how is it possible for DMT to allow us to, to go to another reality? Um, people often have this idea that DMT must somehow transport one. To this place and I, I always try and emphasize the fact that it's all about information it's all about can information from this alternate reality somehow access get into the brain is there some way that DMT changes the brain to exactly as you say to allow it to receive information from this alternate reality whatever that alternate reality is that is enough um, that is sufficient uh, necessary and sufficient, almost, um, to allow us to enter that space. You know, wherever wherever you are, um, if, if you're having an experience as a human being, you are you're, you're you're experiencing a world that is being actively constructed moment by moment uh, by your brain, by information, and your your world is essentially information experienced subjectively, and that information is generated by your brain. And what sensory information from the environment does is it modulates and guides that to an extent uh, that allows you to construct a kind of stable and predictable version of model of reality that kind of makes sense and that you can make judicious decisions about behavior. Um, but, um, so, but being in another world simply requires that information can somehow be gated into the brain uh, from that other space, wherever that might be, whether it's somewhere else in the universe, whether it's in a completely different orthogonal universe entirely, uh, and that the brain can actually start to try and make sense of that and build a model of 
that reality, which would be experienced as, as the DMT space. Um, so yeah, I think what DMT really shows you is first of all, is that, that there is this broad uh, range and variety, this panoply of intelligences that exist uh, and that we can actually communicate with. Um, and that these intelligences may well be trillions of years old. They, you know, these intelligence may well have been around long before our universe uh, even existed. And that, you know, you can't even comprehend and, uh, the kind of the level of intelligence we're dealing with here. And that there doesn't seem to be, um, there's no upper, upper limits uh, of, of possible intelligence. So, you know, you simply can't imagine it. Uh, and what DMT does, I think, is allows you to actually confront some of these intelligences. You know, if you take a, a good hit of DMT, you often you will confront an intelligence that is so beyond your comprehension, so far beyond any level of intelligence that you could even consider. Um, or, you know, stranger and weirder and grander, more powerful than you could ever suppose. And... Uh, and it's right there, and it wants to communicate. You know, it wants to communicate with this little, this little kind of um, little ape, really, that's barely come down from the trees. You know, this is what <laughs> makes the whole thing just so, so much more astonishing. So, yeah, I will definitely check that book out. That sounds like a Andrew. I want to, I want to back up what uh, Darren <laughs> said because when you, after what you just now said, when you get the copy of that book, you're not going to be able to put it down. You'll read it straight through. <laughs> The, yeah. first time, the first time I went to a Terrence McKenna lecture, he talked about that book, and he ah. said that he thinks every science fiction book in the world is based on that one. That, that's wow. the granddaddy of them all. You'll see what he means when you see it. Mm -hmm. And he'd lost his copy, and so I bought bought a copy and sent it to him, and that's really how he got to know who I was. So wow. <laughs> that book had a, played a role in my life, too. But you, you will uh, truly enjoy that, and anybody else. If you haven't read Star Maker by Olaf Staple, Stapleton, and I think you can get it almost for free now. It's uh, in yeah, sure, all, yeah. all over the place, but it's yeah. it's really. I've read it maybe three times already. I, I'd forgotten about it. I haven't read it in several years. I'm going to pick it up again tomorrow. So thanks for that, Darren. Oh, you're welcome. I, I, I'm going to. I know I'm going to read it a couple times, and I just put it in the uh, in the chat section if anyone's interested. Good, good. Oh, thank you. So, who else has a question? Anyone? Yeah, I got a, two quick questions, Andrew. Um, First off, thanks for coming on. I, I just discovered you recently, and I'm fascinated to delve in your work. Uh, your book's on the way. Um, so two quick things. The first one, and maybe this is a question out of ignorance, but in terms of the administration route and the intravenous DMT, does that subvert the need to have the MAOI inhibitors to allow for the longer absorption of it and the longer experience? Exactly, yeah, because the, the, the MAO inhibitor – uh, is specifically to allow um, DMT to absorb, be absorbed orally. So he, these enzymes are present um, in, in, in the gastrointestinal system. And so when you swallow um, DMT normally, it's, it's normally broken down very quickly. So you take these MAO inhibitor to, to prevent that. Um, uh, and also you've got these, uh, these enzymes in the blood as well. So you, so, you know, Absorption orally is a very, very slow process. So, you know, as quickly as, as the DMT is at getting into the bloodstream, any of that is, it's being broken down. So it never can reach uh, psychedelic concentrations in the brain unless you take a, an MAO inhibitor. But of course, if you, if you inject it, then you bypass all of that. So you're, you, you're getting, going straight into a vein. Um, and this, you know, you, within seconds, the DMT is starting to flood the brain. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I, I, I thought that's what it was. I want, didn't want to speak out of turn. And I remember reading the DMT Spirit Molecule book and being envious of these people who were being administered the IV DMT because of that factor. And just, you know, thinking about what could be if you did not have to have only 5, 10, 15 minutes in that space, like you're saying. So the fact that here we are and you're in the academic realm fighting for the right to get this done and doing it within the means that potentially could you know, get to a place where we're conducting this type of research is fascinating to me. Um, and then just a quick follow up, just out of curiosity, in terms of the research that you've been doing, and maybe even your own personal experience, is there a, you know, one of the most, uh, an antidote that stands out or a fact you've learned about the drug, whether it's, you know, it's chemical structure or anything, or maybe an experience mm -hmm. that you had that you could share with us? Oh, oh good question. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, what do I think? What do I think? I don't know. It's a difficult question. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've been reading experiences about DMT for, for 20 years. And, um, you know, the first couple of years, uh, well, longer really. I mean, I've been reading experiences about you know, DMT trip reports for, for probably seven or eight years before I actually first tried DMT. And, and I think what's, I guess, most remarkable about DMT, um, actually to answer your question, um, is that the, the subjective experience is all. And the you can read a thousand trip reports and they sound amazing. And, and um, you know, you think, Oh my God, this is incredible. This is the most astonishing thing. You know, this is how could a drug do this? Um, you can have all of these ideas and thoughts and you can listen to these Terence McKenna lectures where he waxes lyrical uh, about DMT for hours on end. And then you think, wow, this is amazing, but nothing can prepare you um, for the actual experience of DMT. Um, it really is a drug that can only be truly understood from the in, the inside. Um, this is why I'm, I'm suspicious of people that study DMT all of their lives and, and never take it. Um, you know, and there are people that do that, right? You know, people who study psychedelics and say, Oh, I've never touched them. Um, I think, you know, it should be a, a prerequisite if you're going to, if you're going to be in the academic arena with these, with these chemicals that you should actually try them. And certainly if you're going to go on, uh, on stage, um, you know, the, the Twitter stage or the, um, the Instagram stage or, or whatever, um, or the TEDx stage, uh, and say that this, this is, this is just hallucinations and can be explained in terms of changes in brain, um, brain activity. I would say, well, first of all, have you actually taken DMT? That would be my question. <laughs> right. Because I think it's very easy, um, to actually dismiss DMT. Um, as, as, as hallucination, unless you've actually been there. And then it becomes very, very difficult, very, very quickly um, to dismiss it. So yeah, that's the most astonishing thing about DMT. The most astonishing thing about DMT is the DMT experience. There are another kind of, there is this array of other peculiarities that I often talk about, you know, the, the ubiquity of DMT, the fact that it's everywhere, the fact that it's so simple, the fact that it is, you know, so rapidly cleared from the brain in fact the brain is so at home with the mt um you know all of these these things are you know uh, that set dmt apart as being different but but it, it's the experience itself is absolutely fundamental i think and anyone 
who wants to discuss DMT um, really needs to have, have tried it, in my opinion. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to follow up on that point, I think one of the things that's fascinated me now, especially having listening to you just tonight, um, to have the extra skin in the game by having the sort of profound appreciation for the experience, but also trying to delve in it in the academic manner and learn more about what it has to offer, puts you in a unique position, in my opinion, that I've seen recently in this space, because there are a lot of people who easily dismiss it or maybe have had one years and years ago, and they're so far removed to kind of really remember how much it is awe-inspiring. So I think yeah. that's something that will give you a leg up in this space moving forward. Yeah, I think I think it's important. I, I there are there are obviously a lot of people who are interested in DMT, and some of them are interested in it purely from a, an academic perspective and perhaps have never tried DMT. And that's, that's fine. You know, if you want to run brain scans of DMT, this is really important stuff. And it, it certainly has helped me enormously in my work in trying to understand DMT uh, is, is actually having access to this scientific literature. Uh, you know, people who have been in fMRI machines with DMT or with LSD or psilocybin, whatever, and all the pharmacological work is, is really, really important. Uh, and that's, that's essential. And so that I, I draw on that a lot. Um, I think it's really important for me to be anchored uh, within, at least keep one foot very firmly planted within uh, within kind of established neuroscience and neuropharmacology. Because if you don't do that, you end up flying away. You're up, you're up in the clouds in, in woo-woo land, I'm afraid, and and anything goes. Uh, and you know, I have no problem with mystical traditions uh, or shamanistic ways, worldviews at all. I really don't. Uh, but what I do have a problem is, is people who kind of think that they know it all um, because they, they've done a, a couple of DMT hits and then they think they understand it. And they kind of they kind of cherry pick from these often quite ancient traditions to kind of generate this kind of loose um, picture, uh, loose kind of worldview and that really explains nothing. And, you know, I think we have to and again. Going back to Terence McKenna, why not? You know, we have to learn to, to, to know the difference between shit and shinola, right? Uh, and there is a lot of shit out there. And you really, you have, you have to learn, you know, and it, there is this fluffy kind of bad ideas, bad, fuzzy, woolly thinking is, is a huge problem in the DMT space. Um, and, and yes, DMT is, is astonishing. Yes, it's bizarre. Yes, it's almost unfathomable. And, and it feels like it's impossible to explain. But I think if we're going to attempt something like trying to get a handle on it, we really should uh, bring our best tools to the table, whether this is scientific, philosophical, um, you know, at least have some kind of maintain some kind of rationality and have some kind of way of connecting all of our ideas together so they kind of form some kind of coherent worldview or narrative um and 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 there's a big danger i think within this this sort of dm and you only have to go onto the facebook groups you know know, people some of the stuff people come out yeah you know it's just outrageous and and if you if you kind of disagree with them then you you get shot down you know and I, i i stay out of it now you know when people says oh you know, has anyone successfully decalcified their pineal gland? And I have, to, <laughs> I have to stay out of it, you know, and say, okay, whatever, you know. And, and people, people do say a lot of things that are just completely unfounded. And, and actually, they, they hinder progress, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult. You don't want to offend people because people are quite wedded to their own particular, uh, their own particular kind of mystical 
ideas about what DMT is. Um, and, and so, and, and I'm, who am I to kind of destroy that and say that, you know, you're, what you're saying is nonsense because, you know, that's, it's entire, that's entirely up to them. But for me personally, I've always tried to, uh, to keep one foot. I mean, certainly I, I reach out into territories that most scientists wouldn't even touch. And most scientists would, would, would describe what I do as, you know, pseudoscience. They would say, you know, right. the, the ideas that my book, you know, they would say, oh, this is, this is, you know, amusing, but obviously it's nonsense. That's what they would say. Um, and that's fine. I don't, it doesn't bother me, you know, but I, I at least trying, I'm, I'm happy to reach out into, into bizarre kind of territory, but I always try and keep one foot planted uh, on the ground. Otherwise, you know, you might as well just write science fiction because, uh, you know, anything goes. Chris, yeah. I, appreciate, I appreciate you asking Andrew that question because that really points out something important in our whole community is uh, what I call psychedelic tourists, you know, that, that uh, I, I've known several people have come and had one or two hits of something and decide they're going to write books and change the world. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it take, Andrew said he spent seven years reading about DMT before he tried it, and he's obviously yeah. tried it. Uh, I won't. I shouldn't say that. That might be illegal. But in any event, uh, you know, uh, Terrence described the psychedelic tourist, uh, the person who's really uh, an evangelist but's only tried it once, as somebody who's who's flown into Paris at Orly Airport and changed planes there and says, yeah, I've been to, to Paris uh, with a guy who moved to Paris and spent 30 years there, learned the language, got a job, had a couple lovers. And that's the difference between somebody yeah. who's who's done the work, you know. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, Andrew, you really bring a lot to this whole discussion in the community and, and, and both the research crowd and then the people like me that are, are the ones who are interested in all this but don't have the technical chops nor the uh, focus to want to do all the work that you do. Uh, you know, I've watched some of your videos online and, and you really uh, uh, go into the science of it uh, a great deal, which is something that has to be done to, uh, to, to show the, the naysayers that, you know, there's really a lot more to this. And oh, yeah. fortunately, somebody like you is doing this, you know, and, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but what, what can we all do to help you move forward in your work? Well, I think I mean, it's, it's, I, I work largely independently. There are, there are a couple of teams that are, as I said, that are kind of developing this, this, this DMT, um, infusion technology but a lot of the work that i do is 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 on a purely theoretical sense in that i'm i'm i'm, I'm i think a lot about dmt i uh, i write a lot about dmt and i try and use the kind of the neuroscience uh, to understand what's going on uh, but of course what as I, I always say you know the subjective experience is, is absolutely fundamental. Um, so what people need to do, of course, is, is keep taking DMT um, and, and keep writing about their experiences um, because this, this pool of, of trip reports that has been accumulating now um, on places like Erowit or on the DMT Nexus, um, now numbers, you know, it's numbers in the thousands and uh, that's probably just a drop in the ocean. And, and people really need to you know, spend some time, I think, um, actually you know, writing down their experiences and, and in as much detail as possible, describing the types of entities that they, that they meet, uh, the type of places, what's the structure of the place like, you know, um, what was what the character and the, the intent of the, the entities, you know, what were the type of the entity, all that kind of thing. Um, and then they, they form this, this, this data, this huge data set uh, where we can go in and say, actually, 
uh, is the DMT experience, you know, how varied is it and, and what are the commonalities? Um, yes, the DMT, we know the DMT state is, is extremely variable and not everyone has the same experience. And yet one cannot help but be struck that um, very, very large numbers of people describe going to the same kind of place. Um, and it's as if you're within this, uh, people are going to, as if they're going to different areas of the same kind of universe or omniverse or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, it's, I, I, I always say, you know, if you dropped an alien on, on Earth at a random position, um, he, would, he, would, he might have very, very different experiences. You know, whether he landed on the Siberian tundra or whether he landed on the street during rush hour in Hanoi in Vietnam. Uh, he, would, he would very, very experience very, very different worlds uh, and he would report back to his alien kin up on the, the spaceship uh, having seen very, very different worlds. And yet there would be something very Earth-like about that world, a sort of an underlying characteristic, you know, the way that um, the, the colours, um, the structures, the way that uh, the, the entities, the beings, the humans, um, and, and the variety that they're that they met would, that would, would, would mark it out as being a characteristically earth experience. Um, and, and I expect, I expect something similar with DMT that if, if, if individuals are going to a, a different realm, uh, but or different parts of a, of a, of a, of a, of a different kind of space, that they would have different experiences perhaps, but that they would have some underlying uh, characteristic and some underlying kind of DMT uh, motif um, and that is what we seem to get people describe often seeking seeing the same type of experiences the same type of entities the same type of places you know almost to the point now where people um, you know will go on to the DMT nexus and say hey has anyone been to this place has anyone been to the the alien bar uh, people go oh, yeah I've been there you know and then <laughs> <laughs> and, and people really do and, and they say oh yeah I saw this and I saw this and that, that's quite remarkable uh, that people are uh, the, even with a, within a space that is, you know, astonishingly much more complex than our lower dimensional universe, that actually people are actually starting to experience the same kind of places. And so, yeah, these, this is really important. You know, everyone, you don't have to be a scientist to, to contribute this. Everybody who's actually going into this space and having an experience uh, and coming back and bringing something back, however small, uh, and then writing it down and, they, you know, putting it onto the DMT nexus or, or whatever site one wants to use um, as a kind of repository as a this data pool for future generations to um to sift through and say you know analyze no um, you're you're absolutely right andrew once yeah. once that becomes uh, essentially big data i don't know if it'll ever get that big but if it becomes a large block of data then you really can uh, chip away at it and see the, yeah. the common uh, foundation because i've also heard that with uh, salvia divinorum a lot of common experiences uh, yeah. that people have seen same things so uh, i think that's really uh, uh, worthwhile uh, to to explore a little bit more also oh, yeah, sure. you know we we've been talking about uh, stapleton's book don't you have a, a book coming out or is it out now yeah 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 alien information theory yeah so there, we go. there we go <laughs> yeah so this is my so yeah for the last Seven or eight years, I've been kind of writing about DMT. That's when I really got serious, so to speak. Um, and um, I've written quite a few papers, academic articles, and more kind of popular articles about DMT. And, and this really is the, the kind of the culmination of everything uh, that I've been um, kind of thinking about um, in the last 
in the last seven or eight years. And this is, so this is basically my, my magnum, my magnum opus, I guess you would call it. Um, your, your first, your first volume of your magnum opus. <laughs> like the first volume of my magnum opus, exactly. <laughs> in which I describe basically all of my thinking. So all of those videos that you've, you've watched where I describe um, how I think DMT works in the brain, how I think it relates to, you know, the structure of reality and, you know, what is DMT? Where did it come from? And how does it work in the brain? And all these kind of things, um, it's all brought together um, into this, in this book. So it's heavily the, illustrated. The, ti- the title again? Alien Information Theory. Alien Information Theory. And Alien information. I, next Monday, I'm going to uh, put a recording of this uh, conversation here on our podcast. So I'll be sure the awesome. link is uh, in the program Fabulous. notes. But, uh, I, you know, having watched your videos, uh, you know, I, I found myself pausing them periodically because you were covering so much information with your, yeah. your diagrams. So uh, I now have a copy of your book, of course, too, and, and uh, yeah. I can go through more slowly and start to understand it. But uh, yeah. I, I certainly appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing and, uh, and especially coming in from Okinawa this morning uh, for <laughs> us to, to be here. That's nice of you to use your time to do that. And, and, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, get the, your message out here. And, uh, uh, by email, why don't you let me know if there's, uh, uh, contact information that I should put in the program notes and all too, so that, uh, uh I don't want you to get swamp, but, uh, sometimes you wish you would get swamp too, you know, so. Yeah, 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 for sure. So in any yeah. event, uh, uh, first of all, Kevin, thank you for uh, putting us on to uh, Andrew. And Andrew, uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. And an honor. I, I have a feeling we're going to see you here in the salon again before <laughs> too long. So uh, that'd be delighted. Thanks again. And everyone, thank you all for being here. Uh, till, till next time, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> Thanks all. See you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.